Um, All right. Well, so I'll, I'll, I will get it. I am ready to go. I will get it going, assuming that this is, it'll, it'll get recorded and, and be put out there. Is that, and, and, and whoever I'm dialed in for it is, is, is able to hear it. Am I correct in assuming that? Yeah, I think it sh everything should be working and recording. And also, am I, is my sound okay? Um, I, uh, my plans to go on the beach were foiled. It's pouring rain out and I don't have good, um, internet there anyway but it's act but I'm, I'm at least outside is it is my am i coming through okay yeah okay then um then i'm gonna take that as a sign that i can get this thing started all right yeah go ahead okay All right. So now, especially because um, of the uh, technical challenges that um, we seem to have had a little bit here, um, welcome if you're uh, if you're gracious enough to tune in live, and um, welcome if you're tuning in on your own time. And uh, I'm going to resort back to um, when I did my uh, a podcast that was influenced by the tide. This one is going to be tidally influenced as well. So um, this goes out to me and everybody who's, uh, who's on as part of um, getting uh, ready to kind of like zone out and um, get into the cool um, ecosystem zone that we're in. Um, it's a good time to do uh, a few um, breathe-ins and breathe-outs. So um, I can see the ocean from here. So I'm going to go tide in, tide out, breaths of breath out, tide in, tied out so that you can do that as many times as you'd like but um this that's that's to hope that's me hoping that you'll uh, get in the mood we're going to be talking about the edge of the sea and um and uh we're, we're otherwise known as the shore and um that's what we're uh that's what we're going to be focusing on in two different ways this week and then a different way next week so that said sit back and here we go there's this place, a place where we dive and delve into the wonders of our surroundings, where the law is consilience, a jumping together of knowledge, forming a bridge that strongly connects the sciences, the arts, the humanities. A place where natural systems and human systems coexist in harmony, where connections are sought between humans and nature, humans and humans, nature and nature. And yes, a place where land, the living layers of earth, as an equal member of the community with rights just like humans. In this special place, the sense of wonder is our sustenance. You've just arrived at the land health ecosystem. So we're talking about the edge of the sea. Some of us from Philly call it the shore or down the shore. It's a captivating place. To me, it has called ever since I was a little kid, and um, I'll be doing a lot on that next week when I kind of talk about the human-derived mystique that, that we often associate with uh, being at the edge of the sea. So tonight, we're going to be calling this part one of Edge of the Sea, and, um, and it's more of a, uh, of, of a natural association that we're going to be going into. 
So I'm speaking to everyone from uh, Apsecan Island in New Jersey, and um, that's where I am. And not only is rain presenting a, uh, a, a, a somewhat of a difficulty, um, so is uh, so is internet. I was not able to get internet access on the beach when uh, where where I decided I was still going to wear my Miami Dolphins hat. I'm not a Miami Dolphins fan, but um, it has a visor on it because I didn't come equipped with an umbrella, and hoped that my journal didn't get too wet, which I use as my guide with my notes. But um, but I can't get a connection on the beach. So the next best thing is to go onto this balcony that um, I have um, at the condo that I have here at the shore. And let me assure you that I can see the calming waves. I can see them through a haze and, a, and a, right now a medium level of rain that's falling down. But it, it makes me feel good and human and alive to know that the waves keep coming. I know the tide's going out. Um, I was down there um, working on my notes just about an hour and a half ago. And then the sky's again unleashed on my notes. And right now I'm looking at notes written in fountain pen. And um, there's these little droplets that, uh, that where my fountain pen ink got smudged. Um, by the way, my fountain pen ink choice um, for tonight's uh, talk was turquoise. And I actually did not do that on purpose, but um, it's a good choice when you're talking about the ocean. So um, Rachel Carson is somebody who had a deep love of the sea. And um, she wrote a trilogy of books dedicated to, to describing the wonders of the ocean and its environs. The first book that she wrote was called Under the Sea Wind. She then wrote a book called The Sea Around Us. And, um, and then she wrote her, the last of the three, The Edge of the Sea. And so um, the, uh, the Edge of the Sea is, is not just the, the title of, that, of, of her last book. It's also the title of part one of her first book, under the sea wind. But to just get, give you a sense of, of Rachel Carson, um, let me uh, share with you, not, this is even before her book, Edge of the Sea starts, but this is the way she writes. And this is, this is just um, a little bit from her preface. Like the sea itself, the shore fascinates us who return to it, the place of our dim ancestral beginnings. In the recurrent rhythms of tides and surf and in the varied life of the tide lines, there is the obvious attraction of movement and change and beauty. There is also, I am convinced, a deeper fascination born of inner meaning and significance. When we go down to the low tide line, we enter a world that is as old as the earth itself, the primeval meeting place of the elements of earth and water, a place of compromise and conflict and eternal change. For us as living creatures, it has special meaning as an area in or near which some entity that could be distinguished as life first drifted in shallow waters, reproducing, evolving, yielding that endlessly varied stream of living things that has surged through time and space to occupy the earth. To understand the shore, it is not enough to catalog its life. Understanding comes only when, standing on a beach, we can sense the long rhythms of earth and sea that sculptured its landforms and produced the rock and sand of which it is composed. When we can sense with the eye and ear of the mind, the surge of light beating always at its shores, blindly, inexorably pressing for a foothold. To understand the life of the shore, it is not enough to pick up an empty shell and say, this is a murex, or that is an angel wing. True understanding 
demands intuitive comprehension of the whole life of the creature that once inhabited this empty shell. How it survived amid surf and storms, what were its enemies, how it found food and reproduced its kind, what were its relations to the particular sea world in which it lived. She continues on after that, but that, but right away, before she even officially starts her book, you start getting a sense of who this Rachel Carson is. She's a really, really interesting scientist and author, and um, her, her style is really is unique, and, and to this day, I think it stays unique. She's someone who managed to write both beautiful literature and yet infuse it with scientific integrity. Or, might, or you might say um, the opposite. You might say that she, you know, she's, she's a, a scientific writer with a lot of accuracy given the knowledge of the day in which she was writing, but she infused you know, a, a beautiful sense of literature into how she wrote. But um, no matter how you look at it, um, she definitely instills her writing with compassion, humanity, and wonder. And so the, uh, the book that I'm going to be reading from a few more times is the one that I started with, Edge of the Sea. But let me tell you about her first book, Under the Sea Wind. Um, she, she, in that book, she gives people um, an understanding of different areas associated with the sea, both you know, near shore, um, then offshore, and then she, even, and then she has a, a, a section that, that focuses on deep at sea. But what she does, which, which um, a lot of scientists probably would have issue with, is she actually names some of the creatures that she's talking about. And I don't mean their, by, by um, their scientific name, she actually gives them names and she, you know, she, she like personifies them or she anthropomorphizes them. And so for instance, early on in the book, she talks about a, this, a beautiful bird that I just happened to see the other day. <clears throat> Um, called a black skimmer, <clears throat> and her black skimmer she calls ring pops. And by the way, there's meaning for the most part to the, her names, I believe, because I, um, I, I then realized that ring pops is the genus for black skimmer. She focuses on the life of a mackerel, and she names her mackerel scomber. Um, when she's talking about deep out in the, in the ocean, she has anguilla, the eel. And so anguilla is the genus for eel. So she, she doesn't name all the animals that she's talking about in her book, but she chooses to name several. Um, she has a snowy owl in, in one part of, of her writing whose name is Ookpik. I looked that, I wasn't familiar with that, um, with that word. And in fact, it's not the genus of owl, but it's actually the Inuit word for snowy owl. So, um, and then it's also, there's a little stuffed animal I, I, I found out on, I, on Wikipedia, whichever site I checked, also called an ookpik. It's this little fuzzy fairy thing. I guess it's, it's supposed to be a mini stuffed owl. But um, so it was interesting how she picked ookpik for, um, for, her, uh, for her owl character. She also has um, a character that she calls a fish hawk, also known as an osprey. And she names, names that Pandion. And Pandion, I looked up, it's a mythical, um, um, it could either be a mythical creature, but there were, there were Athenian kings or leaders that were named Pandion. And so, um, so she resorted to Greek mythology um, for her fish hawk. And then her fish hawk at one point is being harassed by a bald eagle because bald eagles are pretty lazy. And so if an osprey goes out to sea and catches a fish, 
um, a lot of times a bald eagle lies in wait to try to steal the fish because it's a lot easier for the bald eagle to do that and go catch his or her own. And she names her bald eagle White Tip. So real interesting that in her very first book, um, she, she writes eloquently of the sea. It's factually, again, correct based on the knowledge, you know, back in 1941, I believe is when it was written. But um, yet she, um, she, she carries out stories of adventure, yet true adventure, um, by naming her characters. So again, I think it's a beautiful move on the, and a bold move on the part of a scientist. Um, back to um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the um, book, Edge of the Sea. So if you go to literally page one of Edge of the Sea, she starts sharing the wonder that she, 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 that, that she has for things. She just, she doesn't hold back. She puts it right out there. So on page one, um, the start of the book is called The Marginal World. And here's, and here's how she, like, let me share about a page or so with you of that. The edge of the sea is a strange and beautiful place. All through the long history of Earth, it has been an area of unrest where waves have broken heavily against the land, where the tides have pressed forward over the continents, receded and then returned. For no two successive days is the shoreline precisely the same. Not only do the tides advance and retreat in their eternal rhythms, but the level of the sea itself is never at rest. It rises or falls as the glaciers melt or grow, as the floor of the deep ocean basins shifts under its increasing load of sediments, or as the Earth's crust along the continental margins warps up or down in adjustment to strain and tension. Today, a little more land may belong to the sea, tomorrow a little less. Always, the edge of the sea remains an elusive and indefinable boundary. The shore has a dual nature, changing with the swing of the tides, belonging now to the land, now to the sea. On the ebb tide, it knows the harsh extremes of the land world, being exposed to heat and cold, to wind, to rain, and drying sun. On the flood tide, it is a water world, returning briefly to the relative stability of the open sea. She, she writes for a while and then and, um, one short paragraph that really talks about her wonder, I'll share with you. The shore is an ancient world for as long as there has been an earth and sea, there has been this place of the meeting of land and water. Yet it is a world that keeps alive the sense of continuing creation and of the relentless drive of life. Each time that I enter it, I gain some new awareness of its beauty and its deeper meanings sensing that intricate fabric of life by which one creature is linked with another and with each with its surroundings. So that's, that's how Rachel Carson writes. She, she's not afraid to, to, to speak in first person. And yet again, this is, you know, she's still writing about marine science. And um, you know, it's that unique style that really separates her from, from many other writers. Um, Here's how she gets herself literally, um, you know, into, um, in, into her musings about what really was her favorite area, which was the, the rocky New England coast. So that's where I want to get us into talking a little bit about the edge of the sea, but we're going to go north and we're going to use, again, the words of Rachel Carson to kind of take us there. So this, this is the beginning of her, her section called the Rocky Shores. When the tide is high on a rocky shore, 
when its brimming fullness creeps up almost to the bayberry and the junipers where they come down from the land, one might easily suppose that nothing at all lived in or on or under these waters of the sea's edge. For nothing is visible, nothing except here and there a little group of herring gulls, for at high tide the gulls rest on the ledges of rock, dry above the surf and the spray, and they tuck their yellow bills under their feathers and doze away the hours of the rising water. Then all the creatures of the tidal rocks are hidden from view. But the gulls know what is there, and they know that in time the water will fall away again and give them entrance to the strip between the tide lines. When the tide is rising, the shore is a place of unrest, with the surge leaping high over jutting rocks and running in lacy cascades of foam over the landward side of massive boulders. But on the ebb, it is more peaceful, for then the waves do not have behind them the push of the inward pressing tides. There's no particular drama about the turn of the tide, but presently a zone of wetness shows on the gray rock slopes and offshore, the incoming swells begin to swirl and break over hidden ledges. Soon the rocks that the high tide had concealed rise into view and glisten with the wetness left on them by the receding water. Small dingy snails move about over rocks that are slippery with the growth of infinitesimal green plants. The snails scraping, scraping, scraping to find food before the surf returns. Like drifts of old snow no longer white, the barnacles come into view. They blanket rocks and old spars wedged into rock crevices, and their sharp cones are sprinkled over empty mussel shells and lobster pot buoys, and the hard stripes, I'm sorry, stripes of deep water seaweeds all mingled in the flotsam of the tide. Meadows of brown rockweeds appear on the gently sloping rocks of the shore as the tide imperceptibly ebbs. Smaller patches of greenweed stringy as mermaid's hair, begin to turn white and crinkly where the sun had dried them. Now the gulls that lately rested on the higher edges pace with grave intentness along the walls of rock and they probe under the hanging curtains of weeds to find crabs and sea urchins. In the low places, little pools and gutters are left where the water trickles and gurgles and cascades in miniature waterfalls and many of the dark caverns between and under the rocks are floored with still mirrors holding the reflection of delicate creatures that shun the light and avoid the shock of waves. The cream-colored flowers of the small anemones and the pink fingers of soft coral pendant from the rocky ceiling. In the calm world of the deeper rock pools, now undisturbed by the tumult of incoming waves, crabs sidle along the walls, their claws busily touching, feeling, exploring for bits of food. The pools are gardens of color composed of the delicate green and ochre yellow of encrusting sponge, the pale pink of hydroids that stand like clusters of fragile spring flowers, the bronze and electric blue gleams of the Irish moss, the old rose beauty of the Caroline algae. And over it all is the smell of low tide, compounded of the faint pervasive smell of worms and, sma and snails and jellyfish and crabs, the sulfur smell of sponge, the iodine smell of rockweed, and the salt smell of the rime that glitters on the sun-dried rocks. So that is Rachel Carson getting us into the area that she really loves best. So when she was, when she was young, she was, she was born in Pennsylvania, but she spent her summers in, in, on the coasts of Maine. And that's something that, you know, you know, through her entire life, cut short by cancer, by the way, in her uh, earlier mid sixties, um, that 
it was really the, the tide pools and the rocky coast um, that fascinated her the most. But like Rachel Carson, um, I, I also find tide pools highly, highly alluring. However, unlike her, I did not see my first true tide pools you know, until into my high school years. At some point um, in high school, our family took a trip to Maine and Nova Scotia. And I remember just being fascinated going to Acadia National Park and other places along the rocky coast of, um, of Nova Scotia. And, you know, always being excited when we were there at low tide, you know, because of all the awesome things that you can find there. Um, later on, when, I, when we finally uh, were able to set out to California, and I'm talking about later on, I, some of my traveling didn't take place till later, um, I, I was exposed to the wonders of tide pools on the California coast. Uh, last time I was on a true uh, um, tide pool area was a couple years ago, um, checking out some areas in Maine, and we were on Penobscot Bay, and my kids were with me, and, and, and they were as fascinated as I was. You know, everything about a tide pool at low tide, it just pulls you in. You know, to me, it's kind of, it, it, it always has been, and, it, and it's still, and it still always is. It's, it's like Jacques Cousteau at a micro level is the way I kind of look at it. It's just this fascinating place. And it's such a human scale. Like you can just kind of walk slowly and there's so much to explore. You know, even the names pull you in and allure you. Starfish, hermit crab, sea anemone, limpet, sea urchin, periwinkle, whelk, sea slug and barnacle. I just think even the names are fascinating. And so while when I was a kid, I never visited a true tide pool, um, you know, and had to wait until my teens, I still did actually have my own version of a tide pool. And for me, I didn't necessarily call it a tide pool at the time. I simply referred to it as the, the rocks. Um, if I was gonna give it a bigger name, it was the Margate rocks. So let me tell you a little bit about, about the Margate rocks. And I don't know that, that anybody else other than me and maybe some of my friends ever called them anything like that. Um, but in Margate, there's this fishing pier and um, called the Margate Fishing Pier, I think. And, uh, and it's been there ever since before I was a kid. Um, but until recently, you know, just on the south side of the pier, there was basically this deposited pile of rocks. And that's really the best I, way I can characterize um, these rocks. They, they weren't, you, you couldn't call them a jetty. They, 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 um, you could climb on them. They weren't, they didn't go out far. Um, they weren't very high up. And like I said, you could just kind of like, you could bound over them or, or, or between them. Um, they, there, there was no flat nature to the top of them, the way jetties, you know, um, often have that, you know, um, they're rocks, but they, but they basically have a flat surface. Um, they would, they'd be covered at high tide. They'd be exposed at low tide. Um, you know, the way these rocks were, they were really, they were, it was as if somebody, you know, took a um, bulldozer or something or a forklift and, and they deposited these big boulders. Um, I remember some were quartz or, or I'm, I'm sorry, I think I remember granite being some of the rock. Um, I can't really recall all the other. Um, and, um, but, um, but you would, but basically, you know, they were laid there and I never really could understand what their purpose was because, um, you know, first off, Jetties are generally a lot larger. They go further out. And if you were going to protect the Margate Pier from, uh, you know, from encroachment by, by currents, 
I think you would have put the, your, your jetty or your rock feature on the other side, on the north side, because prevailing currents generally go north to south um, at the Jersey Shore. And uh, the way a jetty works is it kind of, um, it buffets the, uh, you know, the, the, the prevailing current on one side, and then it, and, um, and, and it gives, uh, you know, and it gives somebody, um, uh, um, you know, it gives somebody some, some sand on that side, and then, um, and then it, and then it takes away from the, uh, you know, from the other side. Um, but you know, actually, um, now that I'm thinking of it, maybe, maybe they, they did in fact mean for these rocks to do that. But, but again, these rocks were like, they, they, they were just this tiny, curious pile of rocks. And that's the best way I could put it. So for me, the rocks were like a wonderland because like you had, um, depressions basically like little moats would be left there at low tide. So you'd have these, you have these depressed areas that, that had, that still had water, standing water in them next to the rocks. And like I said before, you could, you could actually find pockets of sand um, between some of the rocks. So it was not like wall to wall rock. It was, it was, it was mostly rock, but there were still areas where you could actually get between them. Um, I remember that sometimes you had rockweed. Rockweed is that seaweed that you can pop. And, you know, in some places that was growing from the rock. You could really break your neck on these rocks. They, they were covered with, with, with living algae. And, um, and if you, uh, you might think at low tide, you could just kind of hop on top and like many a person took a spill. I remember the, you know, the closest um, Margate lifeguards, you know, you'd go on the rocks and then they'd try to whistle you off, even though it's not their main domain. Um, they knew it was dangerous and slippery and stuff. Um, but, um, but to my knowledge, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the Margate rocks was really the closest thing that Epsecan Island um, really had to, uh, to, to a tide pool. Um, unfortunately, uh, the rocks aren't there anymore. Um, Margate and other, and other shore towns um, on Epsecan Island have done this, you know, big beach replenishment project and dune project. And, um, and I don't even know, I, I came, you know, one winter they were there, the next spring they were not. And my assumption is that they, they actually took them away, but because they added so much sand to the beach, it's possible that they, that they just piled sand over them. But I, don't, I, I think at times they would have, they, I, I would have seen at least hints of them. So my guess is that, 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 they're, that they're there no more. But again, this was my wonderland at the shore. Um, we we uh, would go to the beach in Ventnor on the Richards Avenue beach, and we were about a little less than a mile from the rocks. And, and any time I would take my little walk out to the Margate rocks, it was just always loaded with anticipation because you could find things at the rocks and you never knew what you were gonna find there. You know, a lot of times you, you went there and there was nothing of, of note to find, but there was always that potential thrill. So um, I remember finding starfish there. You know, now I have guilt because at times I would find starfish living, you know, on, you know, on the inner side of the rocks and um, I wasn't always, I was a pretty cool um, ecology-minded kid, but sometimes I just needed to have something. So I admit, I, there were a few times when I took starfish off, which means that they would have to die a slow death. And, um, you know, and then they became hard, and then I'd have myself a starfish. Um, I remember one time being dismayed that my dog Kelly um, found my seashell collection. And one day, I, my five-fingered um, five starfish with radial symmetry had about three fingers left because Kelly took a bite out of it. Um, but, um, but I did find starfish at the rocks. 
I remember finding hermit crabs. There was often um, mussels living from the rocks, um, barnacles that, uh, that, um, that Rachel Carson talked about. You could find them living on the rocks. Sometimes you'd find cool shells there. One time, a time that just will live with me forever, um, I was out and there were a lot of crabs to be caught there. And they were crabs that, that, are, that are, they weren't blue crabs, they, they're called calico crabs. They're these pretty um, crabs, they, they, they're speckled, they, they're like a purpley, deep pink kind of, a, kind of speckle on their shell and, and, um, and, their, and their, their main pincher claws. And so, you know, I wasn't that confident of a kid growing up, um, but I was when it came to like finding things and, and catching things. And so I'm out at the rocks, I'm picking up this calico crab. And then this woman, I didn't realize she was there. She's watching me. And like all of a sudden, like she's in awe. And she says something like, oh my God, how can you pick those things up without getting bit? You know, and I'm like, again, this is my one area of confidence. You know, I'm, I, and I say to this uh, lady who I did not know, uh, it's really pretty easy. See, you just have to like get them from behind like this, you know, and, uh, and, and, then, and then they don't. And then I started to say, and then they can't get you. Um, and as I'm start saying, the pinchers can't get you, all of a sudden, this crab chomps down. I don't remember if it's my index finger or my pinky finger, but he got my, my fingers were still little at that time. Gets it like perfectly in its, in its pinchers. I yell like, ow. And I remember like flipping my hand backwards. Um, the crab flies off where I don't know what, hopefully he or she didn't crash into the rocks. I'm left with a finger that was ble bleeding, which hurt, but nothing hurt as bad as my ego, which was so, so deeply bruised to its inner core. So anyway, that's some of my equivalent of early tide pool memories. Rachel Carson, she writes also about the sandy shores in another section of, of her book, The Edge of the Sea. So here's how she starts out in the section that's called The Rim of Sand. On the sands of the sea's edge, especially where they are broad and bordered by unbroken lines of wind-built dunes, there's a sense of antiquity that is missing from the young rock coast of New England. It is in part a sense of the unhurried deliberation of earth processes that move with infinite leisure with all eternity at their disposal. For unlike that sudden coming in of the sea to flood the valleys and surge against the mountain crests of the drowned lands of New England, the sea and the land lie here in a relation established gradually over millions of years. During those long ages of geologic time, the sea has ebbed and flowed over the great Atlantic coastal plain. It has crept toward the distant Appalachians, paused for a time, then slowly receded, sometimes far into its basin. And on each such advance, it has rained down its sediments and left the fossils of its creatures over the vast and level plain. And so the particular place of its stand today is of little moment in the history of the earth or in the nature of the beach. A hundred feet higher or a hundred feet lower, the seas would still rise and fall unhurried over shining flats of sand as they do today. And the materials of the beach are themselves steeped in antiquity. Sand is a substance that is beautiful, mysterious, and infinitely variable. Each grain on a beach is the result of processes that go back into the shadowy beginnings of life 
or of the earth itself. The bulk of seashore sand is derived from the weathering and decay of rocks transported from their place of origin to the sea by the rains and the rivers. In the unharried processes of erosion, in the freighting seaward, in the interruptions and resumptions of that journey, the minerals have suffered various fates. Some have been dropped, some have worn out and vanished. In the mountains, the slow decay and disintegration of the rocks proceed, and the stream of sediments grows, suddenly and dramatically by rock slides, slowly and inexorably by the wearing of rock by water. All begin their passage toward the sea. Some disappear through the solvent action of water or by grinding attrition in the rapids of a river's bed. Some are dropped on the riverbank by floodwaters, there to lie for a hundred, a thousand years, to become locked in the sediments of the plain and wait another million years or so, during which, perhaps, the sea comes in and then returns to its basin. Then at last they are released by the persistent work of erosion's tools, wind, rain, and frost, to resume the journey to the sea. Once brought to salt water, a fresh rearranging, sorting, and transport begins. Light minerals like flakes of mica are carried away almost at once. Heavy ones like the black sands of ilmenite and rutile are picked up by the violence of storm waves and thrown on the upper beach. No individual sand grain remains long in any one place. The smaller it is, the more it is subject to long transport. The larger grains by water, the smaller by wind. An average grain of sand is only two and one half times the weight of an equal volume of water but more than 2,000 times as heavy as air, so only the smaller grains are available for transport by wind. But despite the constant working over of the sands by wind and water, a beach shows little visible change from day to day. For as one grain is carried away, another is usually brought to take its place. The greater part of most beach sand consists of quartz, the most abundant of all minerals, found in almost every type of rock, but many other minerals occur among its crystal grains, and one small sample of sand might contain fragments of a dozen or more. Through the sorting action of wind, water, and gravity, fragments of darker, heavier minerals may form patches overlying the pale quartz. So there may be a curious purple shading over the sand, shifting with the wind, piling up in little ridges of deeper color, like the ripple marks of waves, a concentration of almost pure garnet. Or there may be patches of dark green, sands formed of glauconite, a product of the sea's chemistry and the interaction of the living and the non-living. She goes on. So it's so incredible to me, um, but fitting that Rachel Carson, the marine biologist, basically starts her chapter, you know, like deeply immersed in geology. And you really can't not think about geology um, when, it, when, when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to talking about, about the beach. And uh, that's, that's one of the things that, that I think about um, when, when I go to the beach and, um, and, and just uh, and, and like look at the area around me. So when I'm at the beach and I look out, just like I can look out right now, um, the sun has gone down, um, but there's no sunset to behold. It's pretty dark right now. I assume you can hear the rain around me. So I'm in the middle of a late summer rainstorm. And, um, but when I look out at the sea, just like I'm doing right now, I actually think Africa. I also think that behind me are the Poconos or the Appalachians. 
And then I also think transects, both east and west, you know, east running west or west east and north south or south north, you know, transects that run. And I also think about time over millions of years. So that gets me into, into some, also some, some geologic thinking that I believe that Rachel Carson kind of hints at. So millions of years ago, the African plate, um, our continents sit on these things called tectonic plates and they generally move around the outer uh, surface of, the, of, our, of our planet. Um, but there was a time when the African plate basically collided with the North American plate. And at that time, there was no Atlantic Ocean. In um, geologic terms, um, it, was the, it was the formation of a supercontinent called Pangaea. And from my readings and from my geologic study, there's, there's never full um, agreement that, um, with some of these early beginnings, but there was, uh, but Gondwana was a supercontinent, which had, a, Africa made up a big part of it. Your America, which had Europe and America in it, was also a supercontinent. And so, so one way of looking at it is that Pangaea also was the, was the coming together of Gondwana and your America. Um, in any event, our, our little old Philadelphia butted up against Africa. And so when the African continental plate um, gently, but still with lots of force, collided with the um, North American plate, it caused something called an orogeny, mountain building. And, it, and during that time, the Appalachians were built. And so fresh off of the, con the um, continents knocking into one another, the Appalachians grew and they were as sizable as the Alps. They were at least 30 foot, 30,000 feet tall. You know, they were, they were quite immense mountains. And then again, as, as Rachel Carson talks about these slow geologic processes, um, the plates started to separate. And then you had the formation of the Atlantic Ocean. To this day, the Atlantic Ocean is still growing by a few inches a year. Um, if you ever take a look at your, uh, your globe, you might have um, somewhere or a, or a map of the world, you, you'll, you'll know that, that Africa and Europe, um, the way they are shaped, look like they could fit like a jigsaw puzzle um, with uh, North, North and South America. And in fact, they, they, they once did. So back to the, um, to the idea of transects. Now, now thinking North and South. You know, in today's modern times, we, we say that the Appalachians start in Georgia or end, depending on your, your uh, probably whether you're from the North or the South. But, um, but they, they go from Georgia. They extend all the way up to Maine. They head into Canada. And they go all the way to the easternmost um, area of, um, of North America, which is in Newfoundland. But they actually continue, and they continue in northern Europe, you know, pieces of the British Isles, Scandinavia. It's the same Appalachian mountain chain that, that was formed when the continents were all kind of like one big landmass. And, um, you know, but geologists have, 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 um, have actually used, um, you know, both rock evidence and, and also some fossil evidence to really prove out that the, that the Appalachian mountain chain literally does continue um, from us into Europe. Um, but then over time, you had what Carson was talking about earlier, you had erosion of the Appalachians. And so, um, so basically, you, you had 
rocks being weathered and weathered and weathered and over 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 time and she really eloquently talks about you know the, that slow but steady process um of um of, of erosion of rocks but essentially what's really interesting is when you sit and you and you run your toes um through the sands of the jersey shore made of almost pure quartz where did that quartz come from it's it's the appalachian mountains it, it, they, that have basically made their made their way all the way out to the ocean you know, thanks to the forces of frost and water and wind and the like. Um, so there's this amazing global perspective when, when you're when you're at the shore. I also like to think of the of the of the connections between the shore and and then the Appalachians and and with Philadelphia kind of being at a at a at a pivotal space between them, because if you if you go due west from the Jersey Shore, you know you go from the outer outer coastal plain. To the more inner portions of the coastal, uh, of still the outer coastal plain, um, you go through the New Jersey pine barrens, which have pure white sands, um, which make for an amazing aquifer, the Kirkwood Cohansey Aquifer, which um, those grains of sand filter the rainwater um, to some of the purest water in the ground that you can find anywhere. And then, if you keep heading west, you come more to the inner coastal plain. You start picking up clays. You actually get to some areas when you get closer to like the uh, to, to like Cherry Hill and, 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 those, and those areas of South Jersey and the glauconite that she talked about, um, the, the, the glauconite sands, you have areas of glauconite um, that's, that's in South Jersey, not too far from Philadelphia. And then you get to the Delaware River and the Delaware River and parts of the Schuylkill and really just generally areas right around there in Philadelphia, that's your area that's called the fall line. And it's basically the dividing line between the intercoastal plain and, it, and the start of the Piedmont. And Piedmont is French for foothills. So the Piedmont refers to the foothills of the Appalachians. So, you know, one, once you're at some point in Philadelphia, Wissahickon Schist sets in as the bedrock, um, itself a, a geologic indicator of something that used to be something different. Schist used to mostly be mudstone, which before was the muds of an, of, of an ocean that reached all the way into where Philadelphia is. Um, the mud turned to mudstone. But then when the continents collided, it caused rocks to change. And hence, sedimentary rocks like shale or mudstone became metamorphic rocks called quartz. I'm sorry, called, called, um, called schist. By the way, if there was in areas where there was sand, sand turned to sandstone. And when you had the uh, colliding of continents, um, and the forces that, that, that were set forth, um, your, uh, your sandstone then became quartzite, not quartz, but quartzite, a very, very hard rock. You keep following west, you get into the Ridge and Valley province, and lo and behold, you're at the Appalachians that now, um, what are they, three or 4,000 feet tall, not 30,000 feet like they used to be. So it's a very, um, it, it, when you come to the ocean and you think about your sands, you can't help but also think about other things like, um, you know, like the, uh, you know, you know, like, like the connections that we have to the mountains. So, let's let's talk a little bit more about about um, like, like take a little micro view um, of 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 the beach, and the shore. Um, the beach is a transition zone; it's constantly changing. The tide goes in, the tide goes out, things wash in, things wash out. Um, you can go in the water here. 
You can dive under the waves. You can take in waves. Birds come here. You get all kinds of really cool birds that I was just seeing out earlier when I was make, um, putting my notes together. Birds like herring gulls, blackback gulls, ring-billed gulls, and laughing gulls. The common tern is something that, that you commonly do see at the Jersey Shore. Occasionally you see a cormorant. Occasionally you get lucky and you see a skimmer, like such as ring hops from the, uh, you know, from Rachel Carson's first book. Um, they, they prefer um, more protected areas, but, but sometimes you get to see them um, using their, their, their lower, looks like a lip, but the lower part of their beak um, is what they use to skim the water and catch minnows. Sometimes you're like, whoa, what's that? And you see a pelican all the way up here. Um, to me, they're just harbingers of, of global warming. There's also, um, if you're there around low tide, you can be greeted by pipers and plovers. There's semi-palmated um, sandpipers, semi-palmated plovers, beautiful little tiny shorebirds. And they go in and out, you know, when the, when the waves go in, um, they, they run back. When the waves go out, they, they run out. And what they do is they, they, they take part of a lot of the, the, ba the baby clams that are in and, and other small crustaceans and things that they can, um, that they can eat. And, and are available only at low tide. One of the little secrets I always feel that I have, I always wonder like when you go to the shore, how many people are even really looking at the natural wonders there? But if you're ever sitting at the shore and you see a bird fly with a mission, you're sitting on the, sh uh, you're sitting on the, on the beach, this bird, a, rel a relatively big bird of prey flies overhead and it flies, it just darts right out over into the, uh, the, the ocean goes deeper and deeper. And if you keep, keep watching that bird, and don't be surprised if you see that bird just dive down. And what that bird then does is it dives down and almost every single time it comes up. And if you just wait for that bird to get up, you'll see what it dove down for because he's gonna pass back over you most likely or nearby. And if you look closely, you'll probably see a, like a fish um, that, that, in its talons. And what that bird is doing is it's heading back to the bay. And it's heading back to the bay to feed its young. And that bird is an osprey. It's the same osprey um, that, um, you know, that, that, that um, Rachel Carson was talking about that had to fend off the bald eagle because the bald eagles know that ospreys, they hustle. They swim against the current. I mean, they, they fly, I mean, I'm sorry, they fly against the current of the wind um, that are like totally hell-bent on getting fish for their young. Um, and, uh, and, and bald eagles, when, when, when they happen to be in the vicinity, know that if they can kind of outsmart that osprey, they can get themselves a free meal. But, um, but I love to see the ospreys go out and feed their young. You know, the beach is personal. You can really find things there. And um, just like there's really cool things that you can find in a tide pool, when you're at the beach, you can find, you know, you can find shells. Sometimes you find some, some of these still living, but if they're living and they're in the uh, intertidal zone, they're probably not too healthy. Um, unless they're unless, unless some of the babies are living there in the in within the sands, but you can find clams, different clams like razor clams, and 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 um, you can find oysters and scallops, or their shells, cockle shells, jingle shells, mussel shells, slipper shells, snails, whelks, things like that. You can also find human things when you when you take a walk along the shore. You can find things like balls and shovels and hats and people's towels. You know, people come to the shore. If you ever, if you ever, if you ever need some things, 
you know, take a walk on the shore around seven o'clock when seven o'clock coincides with a low tide, um, you might feel like you're stealing, but the, the tide's just going to wash, like wash anything that's there long, up, you know, far out to sea. I was taking a walk around dusk um, a couple weeks ago and get this, in a short walk that I took in, on, the, on, the, on the beach in Atlantic City, I actually found four, count them, four pairs of sunglasses in the intertidal zone. And um, I mean, seriously, I found glasses and, and, and oddball things at the shore, um, but I never found four in one short walk. But one pair was this, they looked like they, it was like a, um, they weren't real uh, um, Ray-Ban wayfarers, but they were modeled in, 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 that, in, in that vein. And, um, and I, was, I had a dilemma because I picked the glasses up. Um, their lenses were, had a cloud on them, basically from being, I guess, washed back and forth in the ocean over a lot of time. But on the, um, on the, uh, the part that goes over your ears, whatever that part, uh, I guess the rims of the, um, of the glasses, there were a few of these little baby slipper shells. Slipper shells are really cute. They're beautiful. Like they, when they get larger, um, they might not look like much on the outside, but if you find a slipper shell, they have like this deep magenta, magenta or dusty pink, shiny um, that, uh, that, that, you know, on the underside. Well, there were these little baby slipper shells and they were fast, um, you know, attached to the, uh, you know, to, to these Wayfair knockoffs. And so um, I thought, what do I do? And I thought it's probably better to pry them off, hope that they, um, you know, can latch on to something else. That's what they do because they're, on, they're a univalve mollusk, not a bivalve like a clam. So they need to be on something else to protect their soft underbelly part. Um, and I figured at the, at the very worst, I, I'd be feeding the sandpipers. So I, you know, so I, I, I scraped off carefully um, the, the, the few um, baby slipper shells. And then I took those sunglasses with me. Um, when I took them home, you know, they should be recyclable, but I don't believe they are. So I literally just kind of unceremoniously tossed them in the, in the trash. But, um, but, but again, there's all kinds of like, you know, like human oriented things that, um, that, that you find also along the, uh, you know, this intertidal zone. And then there was this past Labor Day. So it was a beautiful day if you think back to Monday. And I'm in the water with my, my little one. And, um, you know, we both go out for a swim together. And the ocean was pretty clear that day. So we, um, we head out into the surf. And I remember um, being able to, like, visibly see um, minnows swimming around when, you know, kind of, again, going with the, uh, the up and down of the tide. And then um, sand crabs, um, sometimes people call them mole crabs. I think that's what Rachel Carson um, calls them. They're not actually even real crabs. Um, they would, when the, when the tide went out, and, and, and the current went out, you know, you would see some of them washing um, along with that, hoping again to get a foothold and dig back into the sand. So I get out, um, you know, maybe a uh, thigh deep or so, and, and um, the waves are rolling. It was, the water's warm. Um, I was pleasantly greeted by a stingray, and um, that was a little treat. And uh, um, stingrays um, really don't want to sting you, so they're, they're, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to be out in the ocean and be swimming with a stingray. And then I saw something, you know, like further out. And when you're in the water and then there's waves rolling, you know, around you and out, you know, past you, it's really, it's, it's, you don't, you don't have the same perspective of the horizon that you do just, um, you know, 10 feet back from where, you know, where the, uh, you know, from where that surf zone starts. And so 
at first I'm thinking like, what, what am I seeing out there? And I actually said to back my daughter, I said like, is there somebody on a, on a, on a jet ski that was there and is no longer there? Like, what am I seeing? I just saw this gray thing. And then, you know, I, I, I keep looking and then lo and behold, um, I realized what I'm looking at because uh, it, because it popped up again. And, 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 it, and I see that, it, that it's a dolphin, you know, jumping clear out of the water, literally flipping. And so I'm thinking like, whoa, this is really cool. So we, so I, so I get my daughter, my mom happened to be on, on the beach. I'm like, Beck, go get, go get grandma, um, you know, go call, go call her. And then, you know, the three of us stood together, you know, with, with a better perspective. And we literally watched the dolphin show. Um, it just was, it was just like, in, on this day, for some reason, you, you can often, or if you're lucky, you can somewhat often see dolphins um, passing by um, the, uh, at the Jersey Shore during the summer, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not typical that they, that, they, that they act like they're at SeaWorld or some other Disney-ish place. Um, you know, but, but these dolphins seem to be really happy. So, I mean, they, they were like literally putting a Labor Day show on, you know, for anybody that, that, that had the, um, you know, that, that had, had the awareness to go, to go look at what was happening there. And let me tell you, it was just flat out fascinating to watch these guys. And so, you know, and then in kind of like, you know, registering that memory, um, I started to think of Rachel Carson and then also, um, you know, and, and, and also like, you know, the way she does kind of like humanize or anthropomorphize some of her animals. And I was thinking like, you know, what, what would she be saying? Or, you know, what might those dolphins, that the dolphins are saying, or just, you know, what, you know, what might the dolphins be telling us? You know, Rachel Carson's fourth book um, was that she published right before she died. It's really, really sad that she, that, that she didn't live longer. And it was called Silent Spring. And that's the book that she's probably best um, known for. But, um, but in there, she eloquently writes with wonder. Again, she wrote, also wrote a book called Sense of Wonder, but that was basically an essay. But she basically writes about the impacts that we're having upon the planet, the negative ones. But most importantly, she calls attention to, um, to, to what the impacts of DDT are. Um, but, um, but, but her book and some, and some testifying in, in Washington that, that, that she did um, really led to the, uh, helped lead to, to the um, outlawing of the use of DDT. And, you know, which was, which was a big deal. Um, it, it also, it's interesting that she writes about white tip, the, the eagle, and um, I can't remember what I told you um, the name of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the osprey was. And, that, and she wrote about, you know, the eagle and the, os and the osprey kind of having it out with one another in her first book written in 1941. You know, she died in about 1964. By that time, eagles and, 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 and ospreys were highly threatened. People basically assumed that, that, that the bald eagle was going to go extinct. And, um, you know, it's a shame that she doesn't know what, you know, how the eagle was saved. And a lot of it had to do with her book because um, so it's pretty hard when, when something makes it pretty far along on the threatened and endangered list, you can almost say goodbye to that species. It's pretty much like a, a goner. But in the case of the, uh, the bald eagle and the osprey, but in, especially the bald eagle, um, which was, which got down to very, very few pairs of, um, you know, that, that, that were alive. Um, by the by late 60s, early 70s, when you took DDT out of the, the ocean ecosystem, it kind of flushed out. And what it then did was um, DDT was no, was no longer there. But the, the quick way that DDT would work is when you spray 
anything like an herbicide or a pesticide, you know where it's going to go. It's going to make its way in the ocean. So if, if you're spraying your crops with DDT, um, whether it's through air or, or through um, or through being washed by runoff, you know that particles of DDT would would make their way into the ocean, and then they would make their way onto the uh, onto like whatever whatever they would meet in the ocean. And a lot of times that would just be like tiny um, plankton or or algae, and so and then basically that DDT would work its way up the food chain. You'd have some, you know, DDT on, a, on little tiny plants that are floating. You get some vegetarian tiny little fish eating those plants um, with DDT on them. Those fish, you know, don't eat a lot and they're small. Um, a, a bigger fish eats the smaller fish. A bigger fish than that eats that fish. Next thing you know, you, you have a bald eagle swooping down and eating lots of the, and eat, eating um, a lot of fish. And, and it's called bioaccumulation. And by the time that the, the eagle would eat their, you know, the fish, those fish would have had accumulated in their system a lot of DDT. And so DDT didn't kill eagles per se. What it did was when they laid their eggs, the shells were really weak. And so then the, then the eagles would sit on their big, beautiful nests and to try to incubate their, um, their eggs and the eggs would crack. And so that's, that's what, you know, so eagles would be alive um, but they couldn't make baby eaglets, and um, and that was the that was the issue. But when but but here was a situation, unlike certain like heavy metals, where you 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 took the you took the chemical out of circulation, and then things kind of readily improved. And we have Rachel Carson um, to thank in a big way for a big you know as a big reason that that happened. So just to kind of finish, I wanted to you know go back to you know in a in a Rachel Carson esque kind of way, and I was thinking like what might those dolphins be telling us? You know, here, here I am on the beach, it's Labor Day. It's, it's, you know, as humans know it, it's the end of the summer, even though the summer still, um, ha, you know, has a, has a couple weeks later you know, until it hits the, um, you know, that fall equinox. Um, these are Atlantic bottlenose dolphins. To my memory, this might even be a little bit late. I don't usually see them around Labor Day. I kind of am used to seeing them making their way, you know, more like July, early August. Um, you know, I was thinking, you know, do they know it's Labor Day? Um, do they, um, you know, these are, these are um, you know, these are not yet endangered. So I'm thinking, like, what are these things hanging around on Labor Day, frolicking and jumping out of the water, unlike any other time I've, I've, I've seen? You know, what might they be telling us? You know, do, you know, besides it being Labor Day, do, do they know about our, our agita over this damn COVID thing? Um, do they know that humans who are at the shore on Labor Day are gonna go back and most of them are gonna kind of follow what humans do. They won't come back to the shore, even though I think the shore is best when, it, when it's you know, in its fall and winter glory. Um, but, uh, but anyway, you know, do they know that humans are gonna go back and then they're gonna start worrying about you know, school and Zoom and all the different things that, that right now are keeping us up at night and, and, um, and are pretty gloomy. Um, and, um, but you know, I, I, I was thinking, Maybe they're saying, hey, don't forget about us. You know, we're out here too. We're mammals just like you. Um, don't forget about us because this is our home. Hey, don't forget about our cousin, the vaquita. The vaquita is this tiny little porpoise. Um, it's the smallest marine mammal that exists. And it's functionally extinct. There's only a, like a, a handful of these things left um, out in a, in a waterway near the Gulf of Mexico, I believe, um, you know, what, what happened to the vaquita is horrible, but, but um, people that go 
commercial fishing, go after a fish that's called the Totoa. I, I might not be pronouncing it exactly correct. That fish is also um, in, endangered with extinction. And, um, but why do they catch this fish illegally and take their chances of getting arrested or fined? Because they know if they catch a Totoa, they can get a whole lot of money for its bladder because there's this black market in China where, where, where they wanna buy that Totoa bladder because it apparently has some mystical qualities. And what do they use to catch that, that Totoa fish? They use gill nets. And gill nets are exactly like they sound. They, they catch fish, uh, I don't even wanna think about it. Um, you know, by, they, get their, they get caught in, their, in the nets intertwined with their gills. And so while they're not fishing for the vaquita, um, not too infrequently the vaquitas would get caught up in these gill nets and then be, be fished out you know, with, the, uh, with the other fish that, that, um, that, that are really the target of these e illegal fisher people. <clears throat> so anyway, maybe those bottlenose dolphins are, are, are telling us to, to, to not let that happen to them. Maybe they're saying, hey, south of here, we got manatees and we just knocked them down a notch on the endangered um, list, basically saying that there's been some kind of a success in saving them, which I don't agree with. Um, manatees get knocked um, by boat propellers, and um, and you know I still think that they're in a very precarious state. And um, you know what about the eels? Um, the American eel, which goes out deep, deep into the ocean, Anguilla the eel that Rachel Carson wrote about. She would have she has no idea um, that that eel is endangered, um, making its way from the uh, freshwater rivers and creeks um, of places like Philadelphia, going all the way out to the Sargasso Sea which is where they spawn. Um, you know, I think that, um, that, those, that those dolphins are telling us, stop killing our home. It's, our, it's the ocean. It's 70% of, uh, of, of our planet is covered in ocean. It's the main producer of our oxygen. It's a huge sink for our carbon. Yeah, you know, like what's going on here? You know, aren't, aren't we full of wonder, us dolphins? Did you know that our brains are actually bigger than yours, you humans? There's a big cool ecosystem out here. You're part of it. You're fouling it. That's what you're doing, humans. So listen, stop being so singularly human. And then that's what they said, and then they swam off. I'm looking forward to next week. Hopefully, I'll be able to get to the ocean itself. And I want to talk more about this human connection, the mystique that we seem to have about like, you know, why so much of us do want to congregate at the edge of the sea. So thanks for tuning in. And I look forward to um, giving you more seaside stories um, a week from now. Good night.